Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 19th episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series, I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. By the summer of 2002, it felt as though club football in England was cleaving in two different directions. As Premier League clubs started to gravitate towards higher levels of corporatisation and billionaire involvement, the Football League was picking up the pieces of the ITV digital fiasco. The growing gulf would come to define the game in this country throughout the first two decades of this century. This is the story of football in England and Wales from 2002 to 2010. On the 1st of January 1998, Martin Edwards, the then chairman of Manchester United, and Maurice Watkins, the club's lawyer, turned up for what they thought was a routine business meeting on a drab industrial estate near London's Heathrow Airport. Mark Booth, the American chief executive of Rupert Murdoch's B-Sky B satellite television station, had told Edwards he wanted to discuss pay-per-view television, a potential money spinner for both parties. But when Edwards arrived, Booth dropped a bombshell. Murdoch not only wanted to be a player in the coming pay television revolution, but he also wanted to be an owner. He wanted to buy Manchester United. It wasn't as though Manchester United hadn't been linked with takeover talk before. Robert Maxwell had expressed an interest in 1984, and Michael Knighton had juggled balls on the Old Trafford pitch five years later. The club eventually floated on the stock market at the end of May 1991. Throughout the 1990s, media company interest in football clubs grew, with both Granada and the cable company NTL buying significant shareholdings in Newcastle United and Aston Villa. The prevailing view was that the days of collecting bargaining when it came to television contracts were coming to an end, and that afterwards it would be a free-for-all, with the biggest clubs benefiting the most. But there would be 20 contracts available. Close-up links between media companies and individual clubs could definitely give some a head start. The takeover news had broken via the Sunday newspapers on the 9th of September, with B-Sky B quickly confirming negotiations over a £575 million bid. United were expected to inform the London Stock Exchange, as PLCs are legally obliged to do, on the Monday morning. But two days passed amid a flurry of speculation 
until the club confirmed on the Wednesday morning that it had accepted a bid of £623.4 million. The BBC reported that as the largest single shareholder, Edwards would see his 14% stake in the club increase in value to £87 million, more than £30 million more than if he had sold it on the open market the previous Friday. Maurice Watkins, the club lawyer, saw his 2% shareholding make a similar leap in value, from £8 million to a theoretical £12.5 million. The supporters were furious and reaction was immediate and visceral. Andy Walsh, chairman of the independent Manchester United Supporters Association, stated that Rupert Murdoch will rape and pillage Manchester United. A fund was set up to pay for the cost of the protest and it had a very wide reach in the media. Such was the scale of the takeover that the matter soon ended up in Parliament with Sports Minister Tony Banks stating that this can't be treated as if it were just a normal takeover of one publicly quoted company by another. The matter was referred to the Office of Fair Trading, who in turn referred it to the Monopolies and Mergers Commission. On the 9th of April 1999, their 254-page report was returned to the Secretary of State, Stephen Byers. His decision was that the deal was to be blocked as anti-competitive, Under almost all scenarios considered by the MMC, he wrote, the merger would increase the market power with which B-Sky B already has as the provider of sports premium channels. But a power struggle later emerged between the club's manager Alex Ferguson and his horse racing partners, John Magnia and J.P. McManus, who have gradually become the largest shareholders via their company, Cubic Expression. Well, there's been a tremendous amount of excitement revolving around Manchester United for some weeks now. We've seen different players coming in and building up their stake for the company. Today was probably the most interesting side of that. We saw B Sky B, the television company, disposing of its near 10%, selling that into the market. And it's heavily rumoured that that's been bought by the Cubic Expression, which is an investment vehicle for the racehorse, gambler and currency speculators, JP McManus and John Magnay, which is the Irish connection, known to be great friends with Alex Ferguson. They share a racehorse together. So this is really an interesting time. Now the market's trying to speculate. Is this a strategic holding they're going for? Is this a first step in trying to take control of Manchester United? In a dispute that stemmed from contested ownership of the racehorse Rock of Gibraltar, Magnia and McManus attempted to have Ferguson removed from his position as Manchester United's manager and the board responded by approaching investors in an attempt to dilute the Irishman's influence within the club. Meanwhile, Avram Glazer, the son of Malcolm Glazer, was looking into investment in European football. The Glazer family already owned several businesses in the United States and had purchased the Tampa Bay Buccaneers National Football League franchise in 1995. They convinced the local government to fund a new stadium for the Buccaneers in 1998 and the franchise won its first Super Bowl in January 2003. The Glazers purchased their first tranche of Manchester United shares on the 2nd of March 2003, spending around £9 million on a 2.9% stake, which they purchased for a holding company called Red Football. On the 26th of September, it was reported that they increased their share to 3.17%, taking it above the 3% threshold that required them to inform the club's management. 
Slowly but surely, they built their shareholding up to the 30% point at which they could launch a takeover bid. On the 12th of May 2005, Red Football announced that it had reached an agreement with John Magnier and JP McManus to purchase Cubic Expression's 28.7% stake in the club, which gave the Glazers a controlling stake with just under 58% of the total club's shares. They then managed to secure the stake of the third largest stakeholder, Scottish mining entrepreneur Harry Dobson, taking their share total to 62% of the club. By the 13th of May, the Glazers had bought a further 12.8% stake, taking their total ownership to 74.81%. Three days later, they reached the 75% threshold at which they could delist the club from the stock exchange. Manchester United was theirs. The protest took a different form this time. Everything was above board. It stunk to high heaven that the purchase had been secured by the Glazers loading debt onto the club itself, but it was legal. There was little that anyone could do to stop it, certainly not after Magnier and McManus agreed to sell their shares. So this time, the protest most visibly took form in the formation of a new football club. FC United of Manchester were the Manchester United supporters who walked away, although many did continue to watch Big United as well. There were no rules or policies specifically beyond one United. They would adopt the colours of Manchester United and they would do things as differently as they could to the corporate game. Season tickets would be pay what you can. The club would be as active in its community as it could. They wouldn't wear a sponsor's name on their shirts. The club would be run strictly by an elected board and it would be wholly owned by its supporters' trust. FC United of Manchester ground-shared at Bury until moving into a stadium of their own in 2015, rising from the North West Counties League to the National League South before getting relegated back a division again. They still comfortably attract four-figure crowds a decade and a half on. Manchester United, meanwhile, will continue to labour under the weight of their leverage takeover for years to come. On a South Manchester playing field, a small football revolution is taking shape. Within weeks of being set up, FC United had 4,000 members who'd pledged £100,000. When the idea for the team was first advertised, more than 900 people wrote in asking for a trial. The final squad, some ex-Man United trainees, others non-league stalwarts, are ready for a journey into the unknown. The team will play in the North West Counties League, 10 divisions below Manchester United. Wizardry with his feet, Wayne Rooney, went for the chip, sit back and admire. While £26 million buys you the world's best young player, at this level you have to rely on passion and commitment. On the last day of the 2002-2003 season, Chelsea played Liverpool in the Premier League in a match being described as the media as the £20 million match. Liverpool needed a point to secure Champions League football for the next season. Chelsea needed a win. But there was also a more pressing need for Chelsea to win this match as well. Roman Abramovich had done very well out of the end of the former Soviet Union. In 1995, Abramovich and Boris Berezovsky acquired a controlling interest in the large oil company Sibneft. By 1996, at the age of 30... 
Abramovich had become so rich and politically well-connected that he had become close to President Boris Yeltsin and had moved into an apartment in the Kremlin at the invitation of the Yeltsin family. In 1999, and now a tycoon, Abramovich was elected governor of Russia's remote far eastern province of Chukotka. Image was all important, a self-made man who was not only powerful and wealthy, but who was also aware of those who had done less well than him during the early 1990s when the Soviet Union fell. His politicking saw him get close to all of the country's most powerful people. Abramovich was the first person to originally recommend to Yeltsin that Vladimir Putin be his successor as the Russian president. When Putin formed his first cabinet as prime minister in 1999, Abramovich interviewed each of the candidates for cabinet positions before they approved. And Abramovich now wanted to buy into a Premier League football club. Chelsea were in desperate need of new ownership. The club had borrowed heavily in order to redevelop Stamford Bridge, and were close to defaulting on a £75 million loan taken out in order to carry this out. It was this debt, along with their London base, and freshly secured Champions League football, and the fact that Stamford Bridge was already developed, that secured Abramovich's purchase. And once the decision had been made, the sale went through extremely quickly. By July it was complete, with £100 million being available to spend on new players. Ken Bates, who purchased Chelsea for £1 a little over two decades earlier, made £17 million from the sale. Elsewhere, meanwhile, another superstar was being born. Wayne Rooney made his debut for Everton in August 2002. By the end of the year, he was the BBC's Young Sports Personality of the Year. In February 2003, he became, at 17 years and 111 days, the youngest player ever to play for England. In September of 2003, he became England's youngest ever goalscorer. England went into the 2004 European Championships in Portugal in a mixed frame of mind. This was, it was felt, a somewhat transitional team, and it seemed a fair assessment after two very late goals gave France a 2-1 win against them in their opening group match. Rooney, however, would go on to become one of the stars of the tournament. He scored twice in their second group match against Switzerland and in their final group match scored another two as England won 4-2 against Croatia to qualify for the quarter-finals. They lost at this stage on penalty kicks against the host nations after a 2-2 draw. Rooney, for his part, earned himself a place in UEFA's team of the tournament. So much achievement in such a short period of time led, of course, to courtship from bigger clubs. Shortly before the end of the tournament, Rooney submitted a transfer request to Everton and before the end of August, he was signed by Manchester United for £25.6 million. 
Wayne Rooney would go on to win just about every domestic trophy that it was possible to win with United and would end his England career as their most capped outfield player with 120 appearances and as their record goalscorer with 53 goals. He didn't, however, win any trophies with the national team. Wayne Rooney will uh, yet again grab the headlines in Euro 2004. His two goals either side of half-time, the main thrust of England's win that catapults them into the quarter-finals of Euro 2004. Croatia go out, and it's been a marvellous game. Nobody watching the 1999 Champions League final would have believed that an English club could win it again in a more dramatic manner than Manchester United did that night. But at Istanbul in 2005, Liverpool managed it. In a show of rare priorities were starting to shift in football, much of the talk before the match concerned whether Liverpool would even be in the competition the following year if they didn't win it. Liverpool had failed to finish in the top four in the Premier League and had to win the final to enter the competition the following season. Even if they did win the match, they were still not assured of a place after UEFA failed to confirm whether they would allow Liverpool to defend the trophy. Just to add some spice to the mix, it was Everton who'd finished one place above them in the table. For a while, there was a possibility that Liverpool might be granted the final Champions League place in their local rival's place. By half-time, Milan were cruising, 3-0 up and, if the legacy is to be believed, already celebrating another title. All that, however, was blown away in six second half minutes as Liverpool barged their way back into the match with three rapid-fire goals. If anyone, though, Liverpool's goalkeeper Jerzy Dudek ended up as the unlikely hero of the night saving two penalty kicks as Liverpool won the shootout by 3-2. There will be no second chances if Shenchenko misses. It's saved it! The European Cup is returning to England and to Anfield. Liverpool are champions of Europe again! Liverpool have their hands on the European Cup again. Three years on, two English clubs played against each other in the final of the Champions League for the first time, when Manchester United beat Chelsea on penalty kicks in the pouring rain in Moscow. The match was some distance from being a classic, but it did at least offer supporters interested in Schadenfreude the pleasure of seeing John Terry's tears after he stepped up, lost his footing and skewed his shot out off the post and wide to bring United back into a penalty shootout that they'd already fallen behind in. It was Nicholas Anelka whose miss eventually handed the trophy to Manchester United, their third win in the competition. But the fact that all of this relative Premier League success in the Champions League, Liverpool had only narrowly lost to Real Madrid a year earlier, was significantly not reflected in the performance of the national team at the time. There have been some who had argued that the presence of two English clubs in the Champions League final marked a triumph for the Premier League. The Champions League expanded to allow runners-up in some member nations to qualify in 1997, and since then two finals, 
the 2000 final between Real Madrid and Valencia and the 2004 final between Milan and Inter have been superannuated domestic matches. The Premier League, some corners of the press crowed, was conquering all before it. Whether this was true or not, there were three consecutive seasons in the following decade when this happened before two English clubs repeated the trick in 2019. It didn't seem to have conferred any particular benefits on the national scene. England coasted to the 2006 World Cup finals in Germany with comfort, but once there, theirs was a familiar story of violence off the pitch and stodgy performances on it. The lack of expectation of 2002 and 2004 had gone. The press made a meal of it all, and the players performed as though carrying the burden of expectation on their shoulders. A narrow win against Paraguay, a tighter than it needed to be win against outsiders Trinidad and Tobago, and a sloppy draw against Sweden took them through to the second round of the competition. There wasn't much improvement from here on either. Another 1-0 win, this time against Ecuador, and then defeat in the quarter-finals, this time against Portugal after a goalless draw and a penalty shootout. Sven Joran Eriksson's resignation had been announced in January 2006. The involvement of the tabloid press was again a factor. Eriksson's replacement was Steve McLaren, but McLaren's spell in charge of the team turned out to be particularly unhappy. England failed to qualify for Euro 2008 even with two automatic promotion places up for grabs from their seven-team group, they were sloppy throughout, from two drop home points against Macedonia to a poor goalless draw in Israel, finishing up with a sloppy home defeat against Croatia on a rainy evening at the New Wembley, which had opened in March of the previous year at a cost of £789 million. One could only wonder, as Croatia secured the win to send them through to the finals, England went into that match needing a draw, whether the amount of money spent on this new stadium might have been better spent elsewhere. McLaren was relieved of his duties the next day and was replaced in December 2007 by Fabio Capello, formerly of Milan, Real Madrid, Roma and Juventus. Seconds left, Gerrard. Everybody's gone forward for England. Away by Serna, Rakitic. Championships. Unless Andorra score against Russia in the next three minutes. England players standing, lying in disbelief. Steve McLaren shepherded it away. Croatia celebrates what for them has to be seen as a memorable victory. And Wembley is stunned. There are Sounds of disbelief, there's a bit of booing, there are people standing just trying to take in what's happened. England were 2-0 down, they got back to 2-2, which was a qualification position. And then they conceded a third goal, and the substitutes and the injured players come on as Carson hangs his head. And the scene is one of desolation at Wembley. Haven't seen it quite like this since, well, probably when Germany won here back in uh, 2000, but that wasn't anything like as significant as this. England's reputation as flat-track bullies in the World Cup qualifiers was by this time deserved. Long gone were the days when qualifying for major tournaments was that much of an issue. 
the expansion of the qualifiers seemed to have made for a quite a comfortable ride. Once there, however, it was a different matter. England's draw for the group stages of the 2010 World Cup finals in South Africa seemed reasonable. Algeria, Slovenia and the USA. An early Steven Gerrard goal against the USA should have settled nerves, but it didn't. Five minutes before half-time, Robert Green threw in a tame Klimt Dempsey shot and the match petered out to a dull 1-1 draw. The remaining group matches didn't bring much relief either. A dismal goalless draw against Algeria, followed by a limp 1-0 win against Slovenia. The lack of goals was costly. The USA finished above England on goals scored in the group, and this meant a second round match against Germany. This time, there was no titanic struggle, as there had been in 1990 or 96. This time, England was swept away by Germany to such an extent that, even though Frank Lampard had a shot that dropped at least a foot over the German goal line disallowed with the score at 2-1 to Germany, there wasn't really that much outrage the following day. Germany cruised to a comfortable 4-1 win. It was almost impossible to credibly make a case that England would have gone on to win this match had Lampard's shot been given as a goal. They'd been completely outplayed. Good challenge, Lampard! Oh, it's not over the line! Oh, it looked it close. He looked it! Referee looked to the assistant and the assistant kept his flag down. Play goes on and it's Muller and it's up snooze back there again. Mesut Ozil. Podolski to strike. Well, did England equalise there? Did Frank Lampard shot bounce over the line? It certainly looked like it. He just loops it over Neuer. Oh, it's not, oh. It's not even close. Not even close. Well, they didn't think it went over the line in 1966. That definitely went over the line by a yard. Back in the Premier League, meanwhile, television rights were coming under scrutiny. An investigation by the Office of Fair Trading in 2002 found B Sky B to be dominant within the pay TV sports market, but they concluded that there were insufficient grounds for the claim that B Sky B had abused this dominant position. In 2007, though, the European Union objected to what it saw as a monopoly on television rights and demanded that contracts be split into separate packages of 23 games each. Eventually, Sky won four of the six available packages, but the other two were taken by Satanta Sports. Satanta had started out as a small company in London, showing Irish sports in bars, but grew rapidly, winning the rights to the Scottish Premier League in 2004, and then the rights to 46 Premier League matches from 2007 to 2010 two of the available packages. The problem, however, was that Satanta UK had borrowed millions of pounds to buy the rights to those matches. It needed a lot of customers and didn't have them. And in 2009, the UK arm of the company collapsed with debts of around £250 million. There was a bit of a scramble before ESPN got hold of the rights until 2012. BT Sport then took over though their deal is now for fewer matches than it used to be, and they've now been joined in the marketplace by Amazon Prime. There were no financial tremors over this in the Premier League, as there had been with the collapse of ITV Digital seven years earlier, though. 
Such is the nature of the value of football's television contracts. Now, to some sad news here on Satanta Sports News. We launched this channel more than a year and a half ago, on November the 29th, 2007 to be precise. During that time, it's been an absolute pleasure to bring you the very latest breaking news from the world of sports. You've helped make this channel great, and we've enjoyed very much reading the hundreds of thousands of texts and emails you've sent us. But after 572 days, 13,728 hours, and what must be millions of minutes, it's time for us to say farewell. Throughout that time, we've brought you more than just the day's news. We've invited you, the fans, to take part in our coverage. And many of you were here in the studio on Saturday afternoons along with us. Well, we produced several special programmes, including the Steve Claridge phone-in, the Steve Bunce boxing hour, and, of course, our weekly look into the world of uh, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, Ultimate Talk. Most importantly, though, we've been incredibly proud to bring you the stories of the day from every sport, regardless of the rights holder. But for reasons you've all read about over the past few weeks, we can no longer continue. So there's just time for us to say goodbye from everybody here at Tanta Sports News and thank you very much for watching. The arrival of Roman Abramovich had, of course, completely transformed Chelsea Football Club. But the key that really unlocked success for them was Jose Mourinho, acquired from Porto in 2004, where he just somewhat astonishingly won the Champions League. Under Mourinho, Chelsea became the fifth English club to win back-to-back league championships since the Second World War in 2005 and 2006, and they also won the FA Cup in 2007 and two League Cups in 2005 and 2007. After a poor start to the 2007-2008 season, though, Mourinho was replaced by Avram Grant, who left the club to their first UEFA Champions League final later that season. In 2009, under caretaker manager Goose Hiddink, Chelsea won another FA Cup. But at the end of the following season, his successor, Carlo Ancelotti, led them to their first Premier League and FA Cup double. They were also the first English top-fight club to score 100 league goals in a season since 1963. Chelsea took the place as credible challengers to Manchester United from Arsenal, whose star faded quickly after going a Premier League season unbeaten. They reached the final of the 2006 Champions League in Paris and even led against Barcelona before being pegged back and beaten. From every season on after this, however, they seemed incrementally a little further away from lifting the Premier League title again. Larson. Brings so much experience and know-how to the cause. Belletti! Oh, it's gone in! And Belletti can't believe it! It falls on Mourinho! And this Champions League final in driving rain now here in Paris has been completely turned on its head. Is that the goal by Belletti? That will clinch... And they finish this final with a flourish. Belletti, Chile, in the European Cup as it was previously known before this season. But they've won in 2006. Arsenal left Highbury in 2005 for the 60,000 capacity Emirates Stadium. There were issues at ballroom level a power struggle which only ended some time later when the club was bought from out of left field by Stan Kroenke. Manchester United remained omnipresent, 
but Alex Ferguson was ageing and there didn't seem to be much of an apparent succession plan beyond hire who he tells us and this didn't bode well for the club's future. There was a growing feeling of discontent amongst supporters over the Glaver's parsimony in the transfer market and haphazard management structure. Ferguson, it was whispered, was the glue holding the entire thing together. And by 2010, a protest, the green and gold protest, wanted the Glazers out. Liverpool also faded. Two American businessmen, George Jett and Tom Hicks, had bought the club in 2007. By 2010, though, manager Rafael Benitez had gone, along with chief executive Rick Parry. Gillette and Hicks were barely on speaking terms, and in October of that year the club was taken over, but only after creditors Royal Bank of Scotland took out an injunction to prevent Hicks and Gillette from changing the makeup of the board of the club in order to prevent it. Liverpool finished in 7th place in the Premier League that season. Manchester City had briefly dropped to the third tier in the late 1990s, but managed the relatively rare achievement of bouncing all the way back. In 2004, they left Main Road for the City of Manchester Stadium, which was available on favourable terms after having been used for the 2003 Commonwealth Games. And in June 2007, they were bought by the former president of Thailand, Thaksin Shinawatra, for £81.6 million. Shinawatra was briefly popular with fans, but especially after appointing Sven-Joran Eriksson as manager of the club and spending a reasonable amount of money on players. However, within a couple of years it was clear that there was trouble behind the scenes. Shinawatra was reported to not have the first idea what he was doing, and City were believed to be in serious financial trouble. They were sold to investors from the Abu Dhabi United Group in September 2008, for a reported £200 million. Paxin Shinawat will need to get used to the cutting edge of Manchester humour and City fans seeing the funny side of his legal difficulties. It had been the former Thai Prime Minister's field of dreams, now in doubt, a mere 14 months on from his controversial takeover. Thank you again for your support. It was all warm words and smiles when he snapped up the Premier League club for $160 million. While now there's uncertainty, he'll be allowed to keep it. Raising the possibility a world-renowned Premier League could be forced to declare Dr Taksin unfit to be a club owner. A matter of fascination for football experts across Europe. To actually force him to sell it back and to find someone who's willing to buy it, it's, it's an area which the Premier League has never ventured into and I bet they're praying that they don't have to this time. Sheikh Mansour is a powerful man. Not only is he a member of the royal family of Abu Dhabi, he is Deputy Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates, Minister of Presidential Affairs and half-brother of the Presidents. And the UAE is not a democracy. Amnesty International has condemned it for unfair trials, lack of freedom of expression, a failure to investigate allegations of torture, discrimination against women and the abuse of migrant workers. This was more than merely the acquisition of a football club by a very, very wealthy man. This was on behalf of a country, and a country with a highly questionable human rights record. But it wasn't questioned, as ever, Too many people were too dazzled by the money. 
and at the end of the decade, Mansour was on schedule with his project of building his football empire. In the summer of 2009, City made a power play by taking striker Carlos Tevez from Manchester United for £47 million. After signing Tevez, City erected a blue Welcome to Manchester billboard with a picture of Tevez on it in the city centre. Manchester City hadn't quite made the giant strides that they would over the following decade, but by 2010 their newly found largesse was already starting to cause an impact. A long wait since the end of last season, today was going to be a day to relish. A star striker, one of the world's best, decided to ditch this for this. Not unheard of, but usually they go the other way across Manchester. Not Carlos Tevez though, he says City's offered him a good future, something United either couldn't or didn't want to do. I was uh, during two years, so Alex never called never call him or never um, send uh, any text message. So the only time Alex uh, talked to him was uh, after uh, the match against Roma, So because they had to discuss the situation of having Carlos playing for Argentina. And uh, it doesn't think that uh, this is the way to treat a player that is for two years in the club and uh, there is no line of communication. By the end of the first decade of the new century, football in England and Wales was awash with money. In the Premier League, weekly wage budgets amounting to millions of pounds were now commonplace, and with overseas television contracts starting to catch up with domestic ones in terms of value, they were this time valued in billions rather than millions of pounds. The direct impacts of the ITV digital collapse may have receded over the four or five years after it happened, but its indirect influence continued to impact upon both the Football League and the non-league game. The most obvious form of trickle-down economics to impact upon smaller clubs during this period was hyper-wage inflation. As elite-level players started to judge their own value in hundreds of thousands of pounds a week, so the expectations of everybody below them started to rise as well. And furthermore, such was the financial discrepancy between the Premier League and the rest that some clubs seemed more willing than ever to gamble their entire existence on a wing, a prayer and the hope that their club would get promoted and head towards the sunnier uplands of greater financial reward. In the two years and ten months from April 2007 to February 2010, Nine Football League clubs, and for the first time one Premier League club, were pushed into insolvency. Each club that this happened to had their own story to tell, but all of them were ultimately stories of mismanagement. There's no other way of assessing the finances of any business that pays wages higher than it can afford, or which has no contingency plans in place for should there be a sharp downturn in the team's fortunes. This was, however, also a failure of governance. The laissez-faire attitude of both the FA and the Football League towards clubs and their ownership meant that what should have been obvious decisions were simply not taken into account. Frequently, it felt as though governing bodies would simply sit on a problem until such a point at which it was no longer theirs anymore. One example of this might be the collapse of Chester City, who were relegated from the Football League in 2009. Their owner, a Liverpool-based boxing promoter called Stephen Vaughan, took the club into a CVA which was successfully challenged in the court in the summer of 2009. 
and this led to a financially crippled club starting a new season with a 25-point deduction already in place. With supporters boycotting and crowds having fallen to the low hundreds, it was painfully evident that Chester were heading out of existence. But the reaction of the FA was almost complete inertia. The club eventually folded in February 2010 and its results in the football conference were expunged. After a tug of war over the council-owned stadium, the club's supporters' trust eventually formed a replacement. A similar failure of governance occurred at Notts County in the summer of 2009, when the club's supporters' trust, which owned a majority shareholding in the club but which had been pilloried for not wildly overspending in previous years, was approached by a shadowy group purporting to be ultra-rich, then the dash for cash began yet again. Sven-Joran Eriksson was appointed as manager. Former England defender Sol Campbell was brought in to the centre of the team's defence. By October, rumours were beginning to circle of unpaid bills and multiplying debts. And with Campbell and Eriksson both gone, in December the club was put up for sale with reported debts of £7 million. It turned out that nothing relating to this takeover had been as it seemed. Russell King, a convicted fraudster, was the real power behind the takeover, which had been underwritten by a £5 million bank guarantee from First London PLC. However, this guarantee was unapproved by the bank's board of directors and came from a part of the bank which no longer existed. First London PLC went into administration later in 2010 with debts in the region of £8 million. King was later described as being sought by the Serious Fraud Office, the Financial Services Authority and Nottinghamshire Police. When insolvency finally arrived in the Premier League, it came with a crash. Portsmouth had won the FA Cup in 2008, beating Cardiff City in the final, but the club entered into administration in February 2010. It took more than three years for Portsmouth to emerge from its waking nightmare, including a second spell in administration which lasted for more than a year between 2012 and 2013. On more than one occasion, it seemed as though there could be no saving the club, and that closure was inevitable. By the time Portsmouth was finally saved, it had been relegated three times in four years, and the new owners of 51% of the shares were the Portsmouth Supporters Trust. This new way of doing things, however, lasted less than four years. In May 2017, the Trust membership voted to sell its shareholding in the club to a grouping led by a former Disney executive, Michael Eisner. Angry, upset, uh, angry with the authorities, angry with the people who've owned the club, angry with the people who've let, us, let the fans down, the fans of this great football club. It's my life. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I just love my football. Done, it's dusted, we've got to make the best of it now. The most important thing is that someone hopefully comes in and buys the club. If not, we've just got to concentrate on making the best of a bad, a bad job in many ways. We've just got to carry on. I've been support for so long now, and... I don't know how they got in this mess at all, but I'm glad that we're not losing the club. I think it's relief that it's not going to be wound up. I think it's um, it is a little bit difficult though um, when it comes to you know not being in the Premiership. But at least Portsmouth and Notts County supporters had the right to make those decisions. One turned out to be a terrible mistake. As for the other, well, the jury's still out for now. 
but at least Portsmouth are some distance removed from football's critical list. Throughout the first decade of the 20th century, it became necessary for the supporters of some clubs to be as clued up on accountancy, company and insolvency law as on the latest league tables. The financial gap was bigger than ever and it wasn't going to narrow at any time in the foreseeable future. The Premier League's television rights would see to that on their own. At the top of the Premier League, however, things were going to change. Manchester United were going to have to cope with life without Ferguson, and Manchester City would write a completely new chapter in their history. But then, from out of nowhere, the football stopped. Each other and grow hearts.